And turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. I'm going to kind of jump straight in this morning, reading our text. We are at the heart, the very heart of everything, uh, not to mention the heart of Mark's gospel uh, in the, the scene of the, the crucifixion. And we looked last week at how the crucifixion shows us really the Lord's heart for broken sinners like us. Um, and so now we're going to look at the, the actual death of Christ on the cross. So Mark 15, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this was, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you play a little, a little word association, uh, if I say the word evangelical, like what do you think of? I know what I think of, and my brain goes to weird places as it does with most things, but I think of, I think of going to see you know, a Christian rock concert's in the old central church sanctuary over on Winchester. You know, the one, if you're from Memphis, you know this place. It looks like a funnel. Um, and, or I think, of, I think of listening, I think of focus on the family, because I think of listening to that radio program every day as we drove home from school, from Snowden. And, but it, but, so that's just kind of where my mind goes, which is strange. I'm sure nobody else's mind goes there. Um, but it has, it has lots of other connotations too. Some good, some bad, some sort of neutral. And truth be told, like the word evangelical has kind of taken a beating uh, in, the, in recent years, sometimes for fair reasons, sometimes for not so fair reasons. And it's almost gotten to the point to where that word has, in our broad, broader culture anyway, has, has kind of lost its usefulness because it's become associated with so much other stuff that is like the real meaning of it is just confused and, and covered up and, and sort of obfuscated. But the word evangelical has roots in the word gospel. It literally means good news, you and Gelion, good news, good, the you and angel, like remember the word for angel is like messenger or message. Like, and it, it means, it really, 
One who believes the gospel. Mark 1.1, remember where we started way back when with this whole series in Mark. How does Mark open his good news? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, this is the good news. This is the good news that, that Paul took to the Gentile world and, and the good news that flourished in Rome. This is the, the good news that, that after centuries was then lost in Rome, uh, but was rediscovered in Germany of all places and elsewhere. The good news that was the pearl of great price for the reformers, those who who fought and, and in many cases gave their lives so that the truth of the content of this news might again be preached and spread throughout all of the world. And God used that and blessed that. And we started at the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Son of God. And, and here we are almost at the very end of, of Mark's writing but we're still just, we're really still just scratching the surface of the good news of this evangel that we are hearing about. Jesus, in our text, is draining the cup that he peered into in the Garden of Gethsemane, that the mere looking into the cup of God's wrath in that moment almost did him in. And here Jesus is on the cross and he's draining that cup. He's doing it as friends have failed and betrayed him, as he, as he, as he suffers on the cross, he's accomplishing the work of atonement for the sins of his people. And Jesus, Jesus is going to finish that work. He's finished, he finished the work of salvation for us. Jesus, in finishing the work of salvation for us on the cross, experienced separation from God so that we might draw near to God. So that's our two points this morning. Separation from God, the separation and the reconciliation. Separation and the reconciliation. Let's look at Let's look at the separation. I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a problem with separation. I guess I have separation anxiety. Um, and I have never been able to do prison ministry. I've had, some, I've had lots of experiences actually trying to do prison ministry, but, and I've done it over the years in various sort of sporadic ways and at, sort of as needed, but I've never been one of these people. And there, I've encountered lots of people in my life and ministry that just... That was their thing, and they went week in and week out into jails and prisons and led Bible studies and discipled the inmates and did all this wonderful ministry. And, and as I have had occasion to go over the years, the last few times I had to go into a prison, I'm not kidding, I got nightmares the week before. Like, I, I couldn't sleep. I had this, all this, it was a very stressful thing. And, and it wasn't just about just sort of the general darkness and hopelessness of the place. But it really was the idea of being separated, of being in that place and not being able to get out again. 
and being separated from Catherine and my family, and it was just, it was just too much, being cut off from those relationships. Separation from those I love is, is kind of my worst nightmare. That and possessed ventriloquist dummies. Um, <laughs> but, but Jesus endured that separation multiplied by infinity as he was separated from his heavenly father by our sins. The, the light of the glory of God reflected on angel faces are what welcomed Christ Jesus into the world, right? An unnatural, oppressive darkness accompanied his death. Amos, Amos 8, verse 9 says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Like, in those hours of darkness that Jesus experienced on the cross, the, in that darkness, the, the sins of God's people were being dumped on the sinless Son of God. And the darkness that is experienced in that moment is signifying the curse of God for our sins being poured out on the Lord Jesus. One of my favorite passages is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, that is God, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to me, that is, encapsulates the gospel. The good news is contained right there in that one verse. I mean, John 3.16 is great, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, like that's what I'm writing on my chest when I go to the football game, right? Um, but I like the, the New Living Translation, or the Living, the living Bible, rather, which is a paraphrase. Uh, says this, puts it this way. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. I mean, that, that's wonderful news. That's great news. That's, that's good news. And at the heart of what was happening at this point in the, the crucifixion, as the darkness descended, is the pouring out of God's righteous wrath for my sin on Christ. Now, we say these words a lot as Christians. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Like we, we say those words. Those are very familiar words to us. If you have ever stepped foot in the south, you have probably heard those words. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. We tell our children that. We tell each other that. We tell ourselves that. And it's true. It is absolutely 100% true. But we say it so much and we put it that way so much because it's simple enough to understand just sort of on its surface. But it's a profound truth that needs sounding one of the reasons I'm really thankful that we sing songs like my song is Love Unknown is because that's what that kind of art does for us, is that it unpacks something which is very familiar and, but very deep, and it does it in a way that frames it and reframes it uh, that strikes our heart differently. That's what great art does. That's what great paintings do, and poetry does, and music does, and 
and, and other kinds of art. It, it reframes something with which we are very familiar and we tend to take for granted. Because we need to, to sound out these truths. And when we say that phrase, like sound it out, the idea of sounding is a way to measure depth in the ocean, that you would bounce sound waves off the floor of the sea and, and ships could know how deep it is. But I was watching a, a documentary the other day um, about these ice skaters, these sort of cross-country ice skaters in Sweden that would get out on these huge lakes and just skate for hours out in the middle like, of this you know, lake for miles. And every once in a while, they would, they would stop and they would listen to the sounds that the ice makes. And, and one of them would stamp their skate down on the ice, and they, you would hear these, these pings. They sounded like Star Wars lasers, kind of choo, 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 choo. And the deeper the, the resonant sound of the pings, the thicker the ice was. And so they could tell how thick or thin the ice that they were skating on was. It's good to stop <laughs> and go deeper. Because it's easy to take the ice for granted, right? It's good to stop and sound out things. You can, you can go incredibly deep with the gospel. And I want us to do that in two ways as we consider the separation here. Let's look at the sinfulness of sin and then the purity of Christ very quickly. Verse 34 says, In the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm here. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no, but I find no rest. John Calvin said this, Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness by quoting the only verse of Scripture which actually described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled. On the cross, the prophetic nature of those words of Psalm 22 were, was revealed in the work and person of Christ, and they reflect this, the horror, really, of mingled sinfulness and Christ's utter purity. Sinfulness of sin. Sin is a, a horror. And this cry of dereliction is the result of our sin being poured out on the only one who knew no sin. And he did it so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. So there's a double exchange going on, right? Jesus is getting my sin placed upon his shoulders and at the same time, he's giving me something. He's getting the sinfulness of my sin, while at the same time, by faith, I'm receiving the purity of Christ. So there's the sinfulness of sin and the purity of Christ. Think of the purity of the soul of Jesus having sin poured out on it. I mean, Jesus, Jesus here expresses what it's like to endure he is enduring something that no other man or woman on earth has ever endured. No matter how evil that person is, Nero on earth while he was living had not 
did not have to endure what Christ is at this moment enduring as he shouts this cry of dereliction. Hitler did not have to endure what Christ is enduring in this moment as he asks the question, why have you forsaken me, God? Stalin, like any of the, the big bads of history in their lives, never had to endure what Christ is enduring here at this moment. Being completely separated and cut off from God. Such is the darkness of sin that, that God, who is light and in him is no darkness at all, turned his back on his only son. This is the, the sinfulness of sin, but also the purity of Christ Jesus. And it's because of the purity of Christ Jesus and the sinfulness of our sin that, that we don't shrug our, soul, our shoulders and dismiss it. We don't, as followers of Jesus, just get the luxury of saying, oh, well, that wasn't a big deal. It, it's just a little sin. That's why we fight. This is why, as Christians, we fight temptation. This is why, as Christians, we repent quickly and often. Repentance should be our breath. This is why we pursue relationships in the church that help us in the middle of this struggle. I've said it a hundred times, you are God's gift to one another. This is why we listen to the struggles of brothers and sisters with grace. And we offer encouraging accountability. This is what it cost the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. And this is how he serves his bride, the church. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's what's really amazing. Like, all of that. Hold all of that out in front of you for just a moment. And think about it. Hold the sinfulness of sin in front of you. Don't look away from it. Don't, don't shy away from really examining what that means in your own heart. Think of the purity of Christ that is imputed to you. Think of the grace of his death on the cross. Think of the grace and mercy of his becoming a curse for you. And then consider this. Enduring this separation, enduring what no one else in their lives had ever had to endure, Enduring the separation of the only begotten Son from his heavenly Father by becoming a curse for our sin, not his own. Enduring the darkness and horror and pain and, and just unprecedented awfulness of that was the pathway to Jesus, our Savior's joy. All of that gave Jesus joy. Hebrews 12 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising our shame. In the middle of that separation was the way Jesus experienced joy. And I I think that the, the intensity of that joy exceeded infinitely the horror of that separation because it led to reconciliation. So let's look at, we've looked at the separation, now let's look at the reconciliation. There's a, there's, I, I love fun, like, hypothetical, nerdy questions, and there's, there's lots and lots of time machine questions you can ask, Right? But here's, the, here's one of my favorite time machine questions. You probably can guess where I'm going. But if you had a time machine and could go back to any moment in history, when would you visit? Like, don't overthink it. When would you visit? Would you go to the moment of the crucifixion? Like, I know I'm supposed to say yes, <laughs> but I, I kind of don't want to. It is the fulcrum of all of created history. Like, you're supposed to want to go there. But, and if you were there, in your mind, like, what would be happening? In my mind, I know being there, one of the reasons why I don't want to go there is because it's so profound. And I know it would be so impactful. I couldn't even make it through a Mel Gibson movie without just, like, becoming curling up in the fetal position, right? I don't know what it would be like being there for the real thing. But in my mind, such a momentous point in history because we know it's going to have an impact on all the people around it. We can't imagine that there being someone so callous that it's not having an impact on what's going on on their hearts. It just, it just has to have an impact on everyone standing at the foot of that cross. And it did for some but not for all. The reconciliation draws people, to be sure. But it didn't draw everybody. Verses 35 and 36, and some of the bystanders hearing it, that is the cry of Jesus, behold, he is calling Elijah, and some, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come down and take him. Like, we know who Jesus is. Like, we know what is really going on in that moment. But the people around him didn't. We know Jesus didn't need Elijah. Right? We know that Jesus gave his life, that it wasn't taken from him. We know that he was up on that cross because he was accomplishing something. And we know that he accomplished it. He accomplished what he set out to do, which is to reconcile a sinful people with their holy God. And there were plenty of people there whose hearts and eyes were closed to that reconciling work. But there were many, most of them unlikely, people who were drawn to Jesus around the cross. The centurion of verse 39, a Gentile. We don't know if what he said is an indication of true saving faith, but it certainly is hopeful. There's also the women of verse 40 and 41 and women who were marginalized and unimportant in society. And 
And it just reminds us that those whom God draws to him, God's accounting of value has never matched man's. Those who follow and trust in the reconciliation offered by Jesus through his work on the cross receive the benefits of what he accomplished. Well, what are some of those benefits? This reconciliation frees those who are drawn to trust in Christ. Freedom, 37 and 38, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. John gives us the words of that loud cry, the words that were contained in that loud cry, really one word, to telestai, it is finished. And the verb tense there gives it the meaning that it has been finished and it forever will be finished and it will never be unfinished now. It can't be unmade because I've finished it. There's no adding to or subtracting from the completed work of Jesus on the cross. God's people can't be any more reconciled to God. The books can't be any more balanced. The shelf can't be any more level. We are perfectly square and plumb to the cornerstone because Christ accomplished it on our behalf. To try and add my obedience to the finished work of Christ on the cross is a grave insult. Because of this, because of this, we don't have to stand outside. We don't have to stand outside of the place of God's presence. And you may know, but you may not, that the, the curtain that's being referred to in the temple here is the curtain which separated the holy of holies from the holy place. It's, it's the curtain that separated God's people from his presence for our safety. <laughs> And only one person went in there and only once a year. And that was how God arranged it. That was how he lived among his people. But now because of what, what Christ accomplished, that curtain, that veil of separation has been undone and pulled back and drawn aside so that there is nothing between God's people and God's presence. Because we've been reconciled by the work of Christ on the cross, and we are no longer outside of God's presence, but He has invited us into His presence. The curtain dividing the throne room of God has been torn open. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the houses of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We now have freedom in Christ. Freedom. What does that word mean? Freedom from sin's hopelessness and slavery. We have freedom from the judgment our sin deserves. We have freedom of access to the Father through the work of Christ on the cross. 
sin slavery can show itself in the big struggles, and it certainly does. The, the, the sins that seem to attack daily, but that they leave you just crippled with shame and guilt, the ones you know you should resist to the last, but somehow they seem to overcome you more often than you overcome them, those ones. There's freedom at the cross in remembering that, that Jesus died for today's failures. This hour's sin, this moment's struggle, and the veil separating you in your guilt and shame is still torn open to let you into God's presence. He does not reject you. In fact, he welcomes you to come with your struggle and failure because it's in his presence, it's in the presence of the Savior that you find forgiveness, absolution from your guilt, a reminder that he took your shame. He welcomes you to come with your struggles and failures because he knows you fully and he loves you perfectly. In the big things, the big struggles, the big sins, the ones that our hearts shudder to mention. But sin slavery also shows itself in the small struggles. How about that inner thought that just kind of flashes through an undisciplined mind, that thought of anger, of lust, of coveting, of greed, of hate, the, the self-righteous thoughts like the publican, uh, not the Republican, but the publican saying, thank you, I am not like a sinner. I'm not a sinner like this one over here in that parable that Jesus told. And the judgment, uh, the judgmental impatience we have with our, our children or our friends or our spouses. Like the things we say, well, you know, when I was a kid, we can never get away with those sorts of things. I would never treat my friend like that. Small sins, but small sins that, that join with the lies that, that tell you that you're not enough. There's freedom. There's freedom at the cross in remembering that Jesus, Jesus died for today's failures. This hour's sin, this moment's struggle. And in the small things, the veil separating you and your guilt and shame is still torn open to let you into God's presence. He does not reject you. In fact, he welcomes you to come with your struggles and failures. He knows you fully and he loves you perfectly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that perfect love, the perfect love of Christ Jesus. Thank you for the perfect love of our Savior who knows us. Thank you for, for knowing us fully. And that can be a scary thought, God, as we, we ponder what it means for the, the God of the universe to know every thought and inclination of our hearts, every secret hidden sin, Every, every darkness that we try to deny or cover up, even to ourselves, Lord, you are aware of them. You know them. And yet because of the purity of Christ, 
given to us by grace through faith, you love us fully. You have washed away those sins. They, they are no longer ours because they were placed on Jesus. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the beauty of our Savior. Thank you for setting this table before us to remind us that in his broken body and shed blood, we find freedom, we find access, we find a welcoming, loving Heavenly Father ready to draw us up into his presence. Lord, as we come this morning, remind us of that. Use this sacrament to, to teach us and to communicate to us again the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.